The scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is convenient. Would you please be standing? It's now time to dismiss our children to toddle time and the children's Bible hour. It is convenient. The splendor of a king clothed in my... When you were a child, how did you see God? A woman named Monica Parker has put together a little book called How Children See God. And some of the descriptions of God and some of the pictures that these children have drawn of God are quite interesting. For example, age nine, Gabby says this about God. God has giant ears so he can hear everything we are saying. And there's a picture right there. Or maybe Angel, who's five years old, says this. God is a superhero for the world. I'm not sure if that's an Avenger or Marvels. I get those mixed up anyway, but in her mind, God is a superhero. And then we have the more philosophical Cameron, who's eight years old. He writes this, God's got an invisible head, and he floats in the garden. One side is night, the other side is day, and God sees the owls and the bunnies and the butterflies. God also rides a motorcycle, but he's playing hockey in Pasadena right now. He can do everything. Pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Or maybe 12-year-old Olivia who drew this picture and says, When God gets mad, he lets out the thunder and throws lightning around. And her attention to detail is quite interesting. Notice the hairy armpits that God has. <laughs> you know, we sometimes carry with us into adulthood a view of God that was formed from childhood. And it never really changes. It never really matures with our faith. And so maybe as an adult, we view God as a superhero. Or maybe we view God as a long-bearded, grandfatherly figure that gives us whatever we ask for. Or maybe we see God as someone who is up in the clouds with the lightning bolts and the thunder ready to rain down on us when we mess up. Today we're going to talk about the guilt God. Some of you know exactly who the guilt God is. You know what it's like to live life in fear, thinking that God is controlling you with that fear and that guilt. And what's interesting about that is when we serve the guilt God, we often 
fail to pass on grace to others, goodness to others, mercy to others, because we haven't fully embraced or come to terms with God's grace and forgiveness of us. And so we fail sometimes to pass it on to others. God, when we view God as primarily the guilt God, he's very easy to walk away from. In fact, he's very easy for us to run away from. After all, who wants to live in fear? Who wants to live with guilt? And so in our minds somewhere, we, we consider the notion that if I can leave God, I can leave behind guilt and fear. And so it stands to reason that let me just dump God, and by doing that, I can dump these negative feelings that I have because who wants to live with those negative feelings? Guilt God usually takes on a couple of different forms, maybe a couple of different manifestations of the guilt God. And the first one is the anti-fun or anti-fun God, the gloom and doom God. If it's enjoyable, it's wrong. If it's fun, we shouldn't be doing it. If it's amusing or pleasurable, it's probably breaking one of the Ten Commandments, right? That's the idea behind this guilt God, this, this no fun God. God doesn't want me to have any fun. In fact, I'm not even sure if God knows what fun is. Not only do some believers view God this way, but if you think about it, this is how many unbelievers view God and Christians and the church. And they say, why would I ever become a Christian? That doesn't look like fun at all. You never get to enjoy life. You never get to have any fun. All you do is sit in boring old church and listen to boring old sermons. On the weekends, you maybe watch a G-rated movie. And if you're really feeling wild, then when you go to Chick-fil-A, you order the spicy chicken sandwich. That's about the extent of the Christian life, right? Christians don't have any fun. And I wonder where they get that idea. Could it be that they're watching us? (laughs) Could it be that they're following us on social media? Maybe we are sending that message to the world. We gather here and we sing, sing and be happy, but so often we act angry and we look miserable. And the world picks up on that. They see us and they say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want any part of that. And so there's the no fun, gloom and doom version of the guilt God. And there's the, uh, the other version. The other manifestation of this image of God. And it is the God who constantly controls us with fear and guilt. Some of you grew up with this God, didn't you? The turn or burn God. The get it right or you're going to get left God. The sinners in the hands of an angry God, God. You just mess up one time and zap. There are a lot of don'ts that come with this God. Don't cross the line. Don't say these words. Don't hang out with those people. Don't go to those places. Don't do this. Don't do that. Or you're going to (laughs) fry. This version of God is like a police officer. You know that police officer who's uh, up on the hill on the side of the road, hidden away behind the bushes? But he has his radar out. He's just waiting for you to go by speeding. You know that feeling, right? When you come up over the hill and you see him. Every time I see a police officer on the side like that, I hit the brakes, I slow down, even if I'm not speeding. 
There's just this fear inside of me. Oh no, what am I doing wrong, right? I'm probably speeding, I should slow down. It's that guilt factor. And that's how some of us live our lives with God. God is constantly watching over me. He's got his radar pointing right at me, just waiting for me to mess up so he can pull me over and correct me, so he can zap me. Now hear me carefully. We cannot ignore the wrath of God or the reality of judgment and hell. May we never downplay these realities. But if our view of God is informed primarily through the lens of fear and guilt, we are missing who God is. See, there's some problems with viewing God in this way. One of the problems is we become merit-based. You see, if in my mind God will punish me and God is holding over me everything I do and don't do, then what I do becomes extremely important. And so external, visible actions become a way for me not to respond to God's love, but to earn God's love. And we, we become in many ways like the Pharisees. Our heart may be far from God, but God is just watching what I do, and so I just need to do the right things. And when I don't do the right things, or if I do the wrong things, maybe I can do enough good to mitigate the bad that I've done. You see, that's a problem. A second problem with this view of God is that basically we just become miserable, <laughs> living constantly with this dark cloud hovering over our heads hauling around with us all the time the guilt, the sin, our past. It's like a ball and chain. We just drag it around everywhere and people look at us and think, why are you dragging that? I have to. It's my job. It's my cross to bear. My past, my sin, my struggles. Yeah, but didn't Jesus forgive those? Well, maybe he did, but I still need to pull them myself. I need to drag them around. I need to feel badly about myself. So we beat ourselves up. And we allow other people to beat us up because we think we deserve that. It's a miserable existence, which leads to another problem with this view of God. We are misleading the world. We are misleading others. You see, serving the guilt God damages my witness to a watching world. Where is the joy in being a Christian? Where is the sense of delight who in the world would want to follow Jesus if following Jesus looks like drudgery? And so we must look at the true nature of God and get a fuller picture of God. Yes, God is just. And we should have a very healthy fear or reverence for God. And the Bible talks about God's wrath and final judgment. But we must understand that God's laws, his ways of life for us, are designed to protect us and provide for us. God isn't against you having fun. He might challenge the world's version or definition of fun, but God's laws, his ways of living life that he prescribes for you and me, they aren't intended to squelch your enjoyment. In fact, it's just the opposite. God wants to provide this full life for you, and he knows exactly what it should look like. 
Over 30 years ago, our state implemented seatbelt laws. Some of you weren't even around back then. Some of us can remember before the seatbelt laws. We couldn't even find our seatbelts in our cars. They were tucked away, way down into those seats, right? And we just bounced around, rattled around cars. We never buckled up. I can remember as a child going on family trips. My spot was on top of a blanket in the floorboard behind the driver's seat. I was the last of four kids, so that's where I got to ride. And so we could look at this seatbelt law, right? Ah, they're making us buckle up. Click it or tick it, right? That was a theme or a slogan not long ago. And we can say, you know, those seatbelts really limit my freedom. They, in essence, ruin my fun. <laughs> and we can focus on all the things we can't do when we're wearing a seatbelt. We can't move around. We can't lay down. We can't really get comfortable. But the truth is, seatbelts keep us alive. They serve a very good purpose. They help us to live. Same with God's laws. Take sex, for example. Throughout the Bible, we are repeatedly told to avoid sexual immorality. One example is 1 Corinthians 6.18. In fact, over in Ephesians 5, it says, avoid even a hint of sexual immorality. It is a constant theme throughout the New Testament. So some may argue that, well, God doesn't, he just doesn't want us to have any fun. He's restricting what we can do because he doesn't want us to have fun. But see, these laws, if you will, are based on very positive principles. God created sex for the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. And so the world might say, God doesn't want me to have fun. But the truth is, these laws are based on very positive principles. Principles such as genuine love and faithfulness and purity. Which, by the way, all reflect the character and the nature of God himself. God is a faithful God. God is a loving God. God is a pure God. And so these laws, these ways of life for us, represent him. They come from his heart, his character, his nature. And they are intended not to squelch our fun, not to restrict us, not to limit us. They are intended to provide for us and protect us. And so God's laws about sex protect us from guilt and provide spiritual blessing. They protect us from sexual insecurity and emotional distress. And they provide true intimacy and trust. They protect us from some of the physical consequences of sex outside of marriage and provide peace of mind. And on and on. And it's not just the case with Sex, but in all areas of God's prescribed ways of living life. God designed life. He knows the best way to live it. He knows the life he created you to live. And so why would we buy into a counterfeit life that the world offers because it contains moments of perceived gratification or pleasure? You will likely regret living by the ways of the world, but you won't regret living the life God made you to live. Jesus came along. 
And he tried to explain to people that everything in the world was trying to take life from them trying to rob them of their lives. And he used the analogy of of the good shepherd and sheep in John chapter 10. And he says this about himself. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some versions say that you might have abundant life. Does that sound like a life of drudgery, like a boring life? This abundant life isn't just in heaven someday. Jesus says, I want to provide that for you now. This life of abundance, this life to the full. Now, as we switch gears and go over to our main text for today in Romans, think about the people to whom Paul is writing. The people in Rome during this time were living lives that we wouldn't necessarily call abundant lives. They were dealing with persecution. They were struggling with how to live as faithful people in this pagan Roman culture. Their faith, their lives were threatened. And Paul wants to to ground them in something besides fear. He doesn't want them living with fear. You see, the world is attacking them, but God isn't. And we should never confuse the two. And so Paul reminds them, and he reminds us, the true nature of God Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? These things meaning the persecution, the accusations, the condemnation from the world around these Roman Christians. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, Paul presents these big hypothetical questions that really have literal implications for their lives. And he does this to assure the people there, but also us, that God is on our side. And so he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, obviously, is no one. If God is for us, no one can stand against us. God doesn't want you to fail. God isn't waiting up in the clouds to zap you with a lightning bolt when you mess up. He wants you to succeed. How do I know this? The very next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, God doesn't throw your sin in your face. He went to great lengths to throw your sin away forever. Sometimes we read the Bible and we ask when we get to the New Testament, where is the wrath of God? We see it clearly in the Old Testament, but where is it in the New Testament? Where did it go? May I suggest that the wrath of God went to the cross of Christ. Because he loves you, God allowed his wrath, his judgment, his condemnation of sin to be directed at his own son. God's wrath met Jesus' obedience at Calvary as Jesus took on your sins. 
and remove them from you. How do I know God wants me to succeed? Because he gave everything to make it possible. If you don't hear anything else this morning, if you only remember one thing, remember those four words on the screen. God is for you. When it feels like everyone else is against you, when everyone is doubting you, when everyone is pointing their fingers at you and accusing you and saying bad things about you, don't assume that of God because God is for you. Basically, that's the Bible. That's the gospel summed up in four words, isn't it? God is for you. And so Paul continues, who's going to bring a charge against us? Who will condemn us? Now, for the Romans, this was a very real question because they would soon face intense accusations that would ultimately cost many of them their lives at the violent hands of the emperor Nero. But for us, this is an important question as well because many of us know what it's like to be targeted by accusations. No, not by a crazed Roman emperor, but by a worldly culture. And sometimes more than that, by our own conscience. We know what it's like to live with guilt, with insecurity, with feelings of not being adequate, good enough. And of course, behind all of that is Satan, ready to point an accusing finger at you. You see, Satan wants you to be riddled with guilt. He wants you to lug around with you guilt and fear and insecurity all day long. Because he knows if you're doing that, you're not living the life God made you to live. And you're not having an influence, a positive influence, a godly influence on the people around you. In fact, in many ways, you're focused on yourself. So Satan points a finger at you. But Jesus doesn't. I think the woman in John chapter 8 is a great example. She certainly knew about accusations. She was being used as a pawn in an elaborate attempt by some of the people to trap Jesus, to get him to say something, do something, so that they could trap him. And yes, this woman was wrong. She had sinned. The text says she was caught in adultery. Can you imagine the embarrassment? And so they dragged her to Jesus and they stood her in front of everyone with her sin and her shame on full display, fully exposed. She was guilty. The law says she was guilty. In fact, the law said she deserved death. She was a homewrecker, an adulteress, a known sinner. And everyone there was armed with stones and rocks, ready to enact justice by hurling their accusations and the stones at her. But Jesus was for her. When everyone else stood against her, Jesus stood with her. When her guilt was evident to all, Jesus directed everyone from her guilt to his grace. John chapter 8, verse 7. Jesus says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, God has no intention of us living life under the burden of sin and guilt. He isn't looking to condemn you. He wants to save you, to release you, to carry the burden for you. So back in our text in Romans chapter 8, remember verse 34? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and listen to this, and he is also interceding for us. Just like he interceded for the woman in John chapter 8, the woman who is clearly guilty, Jesus intercedes for us. When everyone around us, or maybe no one around us, but everything inside us, condemns us, accuses us, piles on the guilt, Jesus releases it. Jesus stands with us. He intercedes for us. And so Paul continues in Romans chapter 8 to paint a fuller picture of this God that we serve. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let the reality of those great eternal truths wash over you. There is nothing that can come between God's love and you. Nothing can separate you from his love not your past not your struggles not your sin not what people think not what people say nothing some of us need to hear that this morning because for, for way too much time for way too long we have been serving the guilt God probably all with a good intention in mind. But if we're serving the guilt, God, we are being buried under the burden of our own sin. And God sent Jesus to remove that sin. Maybe you know what it's like to walk around with the weight, the burden of your sin and guilt. It's time to let it go. It's time to come to Jesus and let him carry that burden for you. God is not against you. He is for you. By the way, did you notice what else Jesus said to the woman in John chapter 8? He says, I don't condemn you, but he said something else. Do you remember? He says, now go and leave your life of sin. You see, guilt actually serves a pretty good purpose when we allow it to do what it was designed to do, and that is propel us to Jesus 
move us to repentance. Guilt should always lead us to repentance. It compels us to take our sins to Jesus who stands ready to remove our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. You see, just like with the woman from John 8, repentance means a change of life, leaving the life of sin. Not living with constant fear and guilt, but giving it over to God. As we conclude this morning, I want you to think about the invitation, not the invitation I am offering, the invitation that Jesus offers. Jesus often had harsh words for the Pharisees, those who were so concerned about the externals. And one of the things that he got on to them for was piling up burdens on people. You're not good enough. You're not keeping the law well enough. You're missing some things. And they made people feel badly about not being able to keep the law. And Jesus says, why do you do that? Why do you tie up these heavy burdens and put them on people? And then Jesus says this, you come to me. If you're weary, if you're burdened, you come to me. And I will give you, what does he offer? Rest. Some of you this morning, you need rest. And I'm not talking about you've been working long hours and it's been busy at home and your schedules are crazy and you just need a nap. That's not what I'm talking about. You need rest. You have been hauling around for way too long the sin and the guilt that has become almost comfortable to you. It's just who you are. But it's a burden. And you drag it everywhere you go. And there are times when you hide it and you cover it up and people don't see it, but you know it's there. And it just drains the life out of you and it drains the joy out of you and it drains the peace out of you. And Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary, if you're burdened, you come to me and I will carry your burden. So maybe for you, it means to confess sin, to leave your life of sin to give it fully over to Jesus and let him take it away so that you can live a life of joy and purpose and peace. But maybe for you, you've done that. You have repented, you have changed your life, but for whatever reason, you still drag around that guilt. It's just become part of you. You need to let it go. Even in your mind, you know, God, he's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Listen, if God can forgive you, it's time to forgive yourself. This morning, the invitation comes straight from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If he's talking to you, and you're ready to give him the burden of your sin and guilt, would you respond? Or maybe today you're ready to become a Christian, to give your life to him, to be baptized into Christ, We'd love to help you with that. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. I am resolved.